0: Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark, the Gospel According to Mark, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to borrow one in these black chair back pockets. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one. Uh, we want you to have that. So um, Mark, chapter 14, and we're going to begin in, verses, in verse 12, reading 12 to 31, and it'll be on the screen uh, behind me as well. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. Please follow along as I read. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we find ourselves in great need of you again. We want to see Jesus this morning. We've come to see Jesus. We want to know him and to hear from him and to get out of of his speaking, out of your word this morning, what you have for us. And we need you for that, God. It's, It's vain for me to preach. It's vain for us to listen if you don't come by your spirit and make these words live. And so we're asking you, do what you love to do, bless the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word, and lift up Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, is a man in perpetual motion. He is always on the move. In Mark's Gospel, we don't have these kind of long, extended sections of teaching that we find in the other Gospels. So there's no, like, big, long Sermon on the Mount like we have in Matthew, or all the parables from Luke. He, take, he takes pains to show us Jesus in action, what Jesus is doing. And because Mark focuses on Jesus' life, on his actions, on what he's doing, he helps us see how all of Jesus' life, everything, every moment, is leading up to the events of one week, the last week of his life. And in, in the first part of Mark's gospel, we see how Jesus gradually reveals his identity to his disciples, how he shows them who he is. He, he does things that nobody else can do. He casts out armies of demons with a word. He heals with a touch. He calms storms. He raises the dead. And once his disciples get who he, he is, once they understand he is the Christ, he's the king, he's God's son, then Jesus says to, him, says to them, and now, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And the whole rest of the gospel is Jesus going to Jerusalem, leaving Galilee, heading south, and on the way he makes stops. He, he stops to teach, he stops to heal, to care for people. But the whole time his mind is, let's get to the city. We've got to get to the city. He had a schedule to keep. And the reason he was so eager to get to Jerusalem was because he had to be there for the Passover. So the Passover was one of the high points, if not the high point, of Jewish life, of the Jewish annual calendar. It was a big deal. So thousands of years, a thousand years, more than a thousand years, before this happened, the Jews, the whole nation, had been slaves in Egypt. They'd been slaves working hard for Pharaoh, generation after generation, no hope of escape. And because he started to fear, Pharaoh started to fear that the nation was going to get too big and too powerful, they were going to rebel against him, he instituted a policy where he tried to kill every son born to the Hebrews. And they cried out for mercy, and God heard them. And God answered, and God sent a man named Moses to Pharaoh, who said, very famously, let my people go. And Pharaoh declined. He, he refused. He hardened his heart. And so God started sending plagues on Egypt, one after another, until that nine plagues had gone through, and Pharaoh still hadn't relented of enslaving the Hebrews and so God said, I'm going to send one last plague, one final plague, a plague almost unspeakably devastating. He said, in every home in Egypt, unless Pharaoh lets my people go, the firstborn son will die. So the Egyptians were going to experience the, just the agony that the Hebrews had been experiencing when Pharaoh was killing their sons. But God said, there's a way to be safe. He said he would he would, he would relent for any family that put a sign on their door. So they were to take a lamb, a male lamb, a year old, without spot or blemish, sacrifice the lamb, and then take the blood and put it on their door, put it on the lintel and the doorpost. And then when that plague came through, that awful plague, the death of the firstborn, God said he would pass over the houses with the blood because it showed that in that family he was trusted and he was loved and he was obeyed. So God said that he would accept the life of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, in place of the life of the son. And he told them that after this last plague, God is going to let you go, so you need to be ready. You need to get your shoes on, get your bags packed, you need to get ready to get out of town. And, and they had to get out of town so fast that that last meal that they ate, the la- their last supper before God's salvation, they ate the lamb and they ate some bread, but there wasn't time for bread to rise. So they ate unleavened bread. So their last meal was unleavened bread and a spotless lamb. And then God brought them out. He brought them into the wilderness. He made a covenant with them there, and they became his people. He became their God. And that's what the Jews celebrated every year at Passover. They had a whole week where this is what they would celebrate, that God saved them, that he heard them, that he made them his people. Seven days where they would eat only unleavened bread, And on the first day of the feast, the Passover meal, every family would sacrifice a lamb. And they had to sacrifice the lamb in Jerusalem, which means everybody from all over had to get crammed into the city. I mean, just you picture Jerusalem just full to the gills with people from all over. And that's where Jesus comes on Palm Sunday. Remember how Jesus comes into town, everyone's shouting and waving palm branches and throwing down their clothes. There's so many people there because it's Passover. That's why there are so many people listening to Jesus teach in the temple. He's come at kind of high season in Jerusalem. But this this that we're going to look at is the last night of his life. And on the last night of his life, he's not thinking about the crowds. He's thinking about his disciples. He wants to enjoy one last meal, one last Passover with his friends. Because he knew, even though they didn't, that his time was short. And there's something he wanted them to understand, a connection he wanted them to make between this Passover they're celebrating and what he came to Jerusalem to do. And when they understood the connection, what Jesus wanted to show them, it turned their lives upside down. And when we understand this morning, when you understand this morning, what Jesus is getting done in this passage is going to turn your life upside down too. So to understand what Jesus wants us to understand, we need to see in this passage a prediction, a provision, and a promise. So first, a prediction. Failure. Remember, Jesus, he had eagerly desired to get these disciples alone. He wanted to get them in this upper room. He wanted to talk to them. He wanted to tell them something. And what he starts off with is a bombshell. Look again at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. You can just imagine how the tone in the room changed, can't you? One of you is going to betray me. Verse 19, Then they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So it would have been no surprise to these disciples that Jesus had enemies. they have been with him, his whole ministry, the whole week in Jerusalem. They saw him turn over tables in the temple, drive animals out with a whip. They saw him... Confront religious leaders, told them that God is going to tear your power right out of your hands. They knew he had enemies, but they never would have imagined that one of his enemies was one of them, was one of the twelve, one of his hand-picked inner circle, one of them who'd been traveling with him for years, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, spending every night with him, eating every meal with him. One of his closest friends, who was even then dipping the bread in the same bowl as him, was going to betray him. And we know who the betrayer is because we've just seen it last week that it was Judas, Judas Iscariot, who for money sold Jesus' life to the religious leaders who were looking to kill him. But they don't. They don't know who the betrayer is. But they're so sure that it's not them. When they say, when they say it is, is it I? Is it I? The, the question implies the negative answer in the original language. They're saying, it's not me. It's not me, right? It's not me. They're so sure that they're not the one who's going to let him down. And and none of them were going to betray him except Judas, but they did all let him down. Look at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, "You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." They're all going to abandon Jesus. At the, at the end of his life, when he needs them most, they're all going to leave him alone to be arrested and tried and crucified. And, and again, they protest that he's wrong. Look at verse 29. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. These are the poster children for self-esteem. They, they are so sure that they can do anything. So they have, you have the Son of God telling them, you are going to abandon me. And he says it's so sure that it's actually, it was actually written in the Bible. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they say, no. We're going to nail it. We always nail it. They're so sure that they're not going to fall away. But of course they do. And we do. We need to see ourselves in this picture. It's, it's instructive that among Jesus' closest followers, not one of them comes through the next 24 hours as a hero. Not one of them comes to Jesus' aid, stands loyally by his side, goes wherever he goes. None of them. They all leave him alone. Why? Why do they all abandon him? It's not that they don't love him. It's clear that they do love him. They just love themselves more. They don't want to be identified with him if it means they get arrested, if it means they get tried. They, they, they want to save their own skins, and this is the, at the root of our problem too, right? It's not that those who follow Jesus, we do love him. We, we love him. We want to serve him. We want to honor him. We want to obey him. But a lot of the time, we love ourselves more. So an opportunity arises uh, at work to speak about Jesus, but it conflicts with our own desire to not look like a fool and to have respect, and so we don't say anything, right? We we know that we ought to ask forgiveness of our spouse, but that conflicts with our desire to always be right, so we say nothing. We know that we should get on the floor and play with the kids, but that conflicts with our desire to have just a restful Sunday afternoon, watching TV, and so we stay on the couch and we don't get down. And going to church on Sunday conflicts with our desire to sleep in after a Saturday night, and so we sleep in. It's not that we don't love Jesus at all, it's just that we love ourselves more so much of the time. So when love for Jesus and love for ourselves conflict, it's so often love for ourselves that wins out. We fail Jesus because we love ourselves too much, just like these disciples, and that's a huge problem. Because the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And God is a perfect judge. He's going to enforce his own law. And that that makes a problem for all of us. So is there any hope for us? Was there any hope for them? We've seen Jesus' prediction. Now we need to see his provision. His provision. A provision, sacrifice. So right in the middle of this passage, between where Jesus predicts, that his one of his followers will betray him, and where he predicts that all of his followers will abandon him, he does something staggering. He does something amazing. And to really understand it, we need to understand a little bit more about the Passover. So the Passover celebration, the meal was like a liturgy. There were these certain things you were supposed to say. There were these questions and answers. There were four cups of wine that had different meanings. And Jesus, who was leading the feast, would have been expected to explain the different elements of the food. He, the, these are the bitter herbs that, sell, that symbolize the bitterness of slavery and this unleavened bread we eat because we had to leave, leave Egypt so fast. But as the meal progresses, Jesus goes just amazingly offed, off script. He says in verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So, so Jesus is taking the Passover meal that they've been doing for thousands of years and all of a sudden he's saying, you know this thing that we've been doing since before our grandfathers, 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 grandfather, this is about me. The Passover is about me. It's about my body. It's about my blood. And that just staggers them. It staggers them. How can he say that that is about him? The reason is, given to us, the clue we need is found in verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. And that's an echo from the Old Testament. So when God brought his people out of Egypt, he brought them, you know, through the Red Sea, and they came to Mount Sinai, and you can picture... Charlton Heston, and and clouds, and lightning, and the sound of a trumpet. They come to Mount Sinai. God calls Moses up on the mountain, and he gives him instructions. He gives him laws for the people, and he says, Moses, I want you to tell the people that I saved them out of Egypt because I want a relationship with them. I want to make a covenant with them. I want them to be my people, and if they want to be my people, they need to live my way. So give them these laws. And Moses tells the people, and the people say to him, all that the Lord has commanded us, we will do. They say, we're in, we want to be a part of that. We want to have a relationship with God. They agree to his terms. They want to be his people. And so Moses does something then that is a little horrifying, at least to us. He takes some oxen and he sacrifices them, and he throws half the blood on the altar, which is where sacrifices were made, and he throws the other half of the blood on the people. Right? That's gross. Am I wrong? That would have been incredibly alarming. He throws the blood on the people and he says to them, "Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you." And the reason Moses did that, the reason he threw blood on the people, the blood of a sacrifice is to say the only way you can have a relationship with God is through sacrifice. God is holy. He is perfect. He is just and you have all fallen short, and we have all fallen short. We love ourselves more than we love him. We're self-centered, and we're bitter, and we're greedy, and we're lustful, and we're proud, and we don't deserve to know God. We deserve to die, all of us. We've all fallen short. But God says, he says, but I I know all that. I know you fall short, and I want a relationship with you anyway. And the way I'm going to make that happen is that I'm going to accept the life of an animal for your life. You deserve to die, but I'm going to accept another life, a substitute for you, and I'm going to call you clean, even though you're not. So the blood of the covenant makes them clean, not because they're good, but because God accepts a substitute. He makes them clean through the blood of another. And on the night before he died, Jesus said to his friends, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. It's my blood that makes you clean. It's my blood that gives you a relationship with God you don't deserve. And now we can see why Jesus had to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember what Mark said in verse 12. He was giving us this colossal clue to what this all means. He says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Jesus had to get to Jerusalem for the Passover because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the one whose blood causes death to pass over. He's the one who makes us clean in God's sight. At the time of the Exodus, the Jews weren't protected because they were Jews. They were protected because they took, they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. At Sinai, they weren't able to have a covenant with God because they were good. It was because God accepted a substitute in their place and made them clean through the sprinkled blood. All of that, all of that in the Old Testament was pointing ahead to this, to Jesus. Jesus is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the substitute. God accepts his death in place of ours. Jesus, the spotless Son of God, without blemish, went to the cross and died as a sacrifice, died as a substitute, took the death we deserve so we could have life. His is the blood of the covenant through which we're able to know God, even though we don't deserve to. Jesus makes peace between a holy God and sinful people. And his death means that those who trust in him will never, ever be condemned, even those who, after three years of following him everywhere, abandon him when he needed them most. That was good news for them, and it's good news for us. But there's more. Jesus had for them a prediction, a provision, and a promise. A promise. Restoration. Jesus was fully aware that he was eating his last meal. He knew that in hours, Judas would come leading the Jewish rulers, leading Roman soldiers. He would be arrested. He would be tried. He'd be condemned, and he'd be killed. He knew it was going to happen. He knew he was going to die, which makes something else he says at dinner remarkable. Look at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, this is his last meal. He's going to the electric chair, and he says to his friends, you know, it's going to be a while before I drink wine again. I think I'm going to go on a little break from wine. I mean, how could he expect to ever drink wine again? Why wasn't he saying, this is my last cup. I'm, I'm savoring every drop. I'm so thankful for this last taste. Because Jesus knew something that the disciples didn't yet. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. As surely as it was written that all the disciples would fall away, as surely as it was written that Jesus would die for his people, it was written that Jesus would be raised, that he wouldn't stay dead. Jesus says that that yes, the shepherd is going to be struck, the sheep are going to be scattered, But then he, the good shepherd, is going to gather the sheep again. He's going to bring them back to him. He says, and I will go before you to Galilee. I'm going to lead you like a shepherd back to where it all started. Galilee was where these guys were from. Galilee is where they met Jesus. And he's saying, you're all going to fail me. And after you do, we're all going home together and we're going to have a fresh start. He's going to restore them. He's going to restore his people. For those of you who remember the story of the Exodus, what does God do after he brings the people out of Egypt? Does he just sort of like escort them to the border and then say, all right, my part's done. You guys enjoy the rest of your life. Just, if you want someplace good to live, that way, I hear, is nice. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes before them. He goes before them in a pillar of flame by day, a pillar of cloud by night. He leads them. Into the wilderness, through the wilderness, into the promised land. He goes before them as a shepherd. Psalm 78, verses 51 and 52 say, He struck down every firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of his strength, in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. After God provided a sacrifice at the Passover, he led his people like a shepherd. And that's what Jesus is going to do for his people. That's what Jesus does for us. So he's going to take them home to Galilee, but even Galilee wasn't their final destination. Look again at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus says there's going to be a day. He calls it that day when he and his disciples will be again gathered around a table celebrating a feast. But it won't be a feast of sorrow, a last meal before his execution. It will be a feast of joy, because it will be in the kingdom of God. This fallen world will have been made new. God will have utterly wiped it clean of sin and sickness and death and despair. King Jesus is going to host a feast on that day, and everyone who trusts him is welcome. He's going to restore us. He's going to restore all things. And now that we've seen all this, we can finally understand what it is that Jesus wanted his followers to understand and what he wants us to understand. Jesus is both the sacrifice that makes peace and the deliverer who leads us into it. He's both the sacrifice and the deliverer. He died for us and he lives for us. He does it all. It's hard to imagine any one person being both of those things, right? There's, there's plenty of examples in history and literature of people laying down their lives for people they love, or causes they believe in, ideals they hold to. But once they die, their part's over, and it falls to others. Right? The, the scene I think of is from the, the first Lord of the Rings movie. And if you've seen the movie, this will have been vividly imprinted in your mind. The, the Fellowship of the Ring is running through the mines of Moria, being chased by a Balrog, which is this monster of shadow and fire. And they're running across this narrow stone bridge over a chasm. And Gandalf turns, and you've seen it, you all know what he says. He turns, makes a stand in front of the Balrog, and he says what? You shall not pass. And he cracks the bridge right in the middle, and the Balrog falls into the depths, but he throws out his lasso, basically his whip, grabs Gandalf, and he pulls him down with him. And just like that, this, this man who had led the fellowship, who was their friend and their protector and their guide, was gone. And then it fell to Aragorn, Aragorn, the, the once and future king, who had to lead his people out of the mines and into safety. Gandalf was the sacrifice. Aragorn was the deliverer. But Jesus is both. He does it all. He does it all. He does it all. And no one else could. But the reason Jesus can is because he's God. He, as God, his death is so powerful that it can cover anyone who will ever trust in him. And as God, he's so strong that not even death could keep him from coming back to his friends. And this passage, in a way, answers an unspoken question from last week. So last week, remember, there was another dinner party. Jesus was at table, and a woman came in with a bottle of incredibly expensive ointment. It was worth about a year's salary. And she broke it, and she poured it over his head. Poured it all out over his head. And so so she wasted, or so it would seem this huge amount of money, just to show love to Jesus. And the question that raises is, who is Jesus that he's worthy of such extravagant devotion? Why is he worth that? And this passage answers. Now we know he's worth it because he's the sacrifice that makes peace and the deliverer who leads us into it. So now I want to ask you a question. What do you do with your regrets? I'm sure you have some. There have been times in your life when you knew with absolute clarity what the right thing to do was, and you didn't do it. You knew exactly what it would mean to love another person, and you loved yourself instead. There are words you didn't speak, and there are words that you did speak that you wish you could take back. There were times when you, you could have said to your neighbors and your family and your coworkers what Jesus means to you, who he is, and what he's done. And you didn't want to look foolish, so you said nothing. We all have regrets. We've all fallen short. Think of, think of these disciples. Think of how they would have thought back on this night when Jesus, who had loved them so well at the end of his life, they just left him alone to save their own skin. Think of how they felt and what they regretted when they watched him crucified and buried. And even after he was raised, don't you think they thought back with shame on this last night of his life? What do you think they did with their regrets? I think they remembered that on the night that that they failed him, he took bread and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he took a cup and he gave it to them and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They could look back and know that Jesus, before the cross, knew that they were going to fail him, and wanted to make sure that they knew before he went that it was for them too. The cross was for them too. The forgiveness is for them too, even though they left him alone. That's what they did with their regrets. And Judas wasn't able to do that. Judas was consumed with regret. He had betrayed an innocent man. And he wasn't able to accept forgiveness from Jesus, so he, so he killed himself. And he passed into an eternity without God. And truly it was said of him, as Jesus said in verse 21, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Listen, Jesus still offers himself to sinners. It's what we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Every time we have communion, we remember that Jesus still offers his body and his blood, what he's done on the cross to people who don't deserve it. He still says to us, take, this is for you. I am for you. We have all failed him. We have all loved ourselves. We, none of us have loved him the way he deserves to be loved, but he still offers us shelter under the blood. He still offers us a covenant based on grace, not on what we do. A covenant that cannot be broken because all of our sins have already been forgiven. That not not even death can separate us from the love of God. Turn to Jesus. If you are a believer, Trust in his forgiveness of your, of your sins, your present sins, your past sins, your future sins. If you're not a believer, Jesus offers this to you, forgiveness and life with God forever. Turn to him, trust in him, take him up on his offer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you glory. We give you glory because you are the Lamb of God who was slain, and yet you live you are the sacrifice that made peace with God and you are our deliverer, the one who leads us in, the one who hosts the banquet, the one whom we will enjoy forever. You are the treasure of heaven. You didn't just die to give us heaven, you, you died to give us yourself and we thank you and we praise you and, and we ask that, that you would use us so that more and more people would trust in what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.